Hello, hello, hello. Hey, all right, good morning, everybody. Let's get started. We're going to finish up with nuns today. You know, nuns, you know, that's the new, uh, new millennial designation for religious faith. It's spelled a little different. That's a, little, that's, a, that's a nerd joke right there. Big nerd joke. N-O-N-E-S. Nuns, young people, are not affiliated with any different kind of nun. So. Okay. If I, if I had a drum set, it would have worked well. All right, so today, I don't know if you guys realize, but the first reading from Anna Sophia of Quindlinburg, she was a nun, by the way. I don't, know if I, did I, mention, I don't know if I mentioned that or if you got that from the reading or not. So one of the interesting things is, again, from, just kind of reviewed from last week, nun was a more complicated term than maybe what we think of, because when we think of nun, we think of Audrey Hepburn. Right? Uh, no. Is it Audrey or Catherine? Audrey. Audrey. Uh, or, um, you know, Julie Andrews. Oh, yeah, you know, we didn't bring up Sally Field last week. No. She was the flying nun, is that right? She was. But was she, she was a novice, wasn't she? Yeah, I think so. What? She was a novice. I, you're, that's out of my league. I don't know. Wrong generation. I, did she, like, actually fly around, or was that, like, a metaphor? Like Mary Poppins. With the umbrella. But it wasn't like a superpower flying. No, no, no. She had to catch the wind just right. She, like that. Just and, just right. and she was going where God led her or what? She had to be starched. Or the wind. I think it was just the wind. The Holy Spirit. Well, Holy wind. I don't know how doctors hold the. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> a mighty wind. It's a reference to Acts chapter 2. Could be. I never watched that show, so I can't say for certain, but if I wanted to say it in the most kindest way, I would say that Sally Field, the flying nun, is she's flying on the wind of the Holy Spirit. A mighty wind. I, I, isn't that the King James Version translation of, uh, I think, Acts chapter 2, right? When the Holy Spirit comes, it's a mighty wind. It's called a mighty wind. Yeah. What are we talking about? Oh, yeah. Uh, Anna Sophia... Nuns. So she's a Lutheran nun. Again, nuns back. So uh, that term was kind of more inclusive rather than exclusive. And the, the convent, quote unquote convent in Quindlinburg, was more like a canonist house than a, a convent that we think of with like a cloistered group. And um, so taking the vows, the three vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Uh, Anna did not have those same vows, so she could have left the the, the Canis house, any, Canis house, any time. But uh, there was a long tradition in Quedlinburg uh, for that keeping that that Canon house. So, by the way, Quedlinburg is kind of an interesting t- well, not to get too much on tangent, qu- interesting town in Lutheran history. Because, not only because of Anna Sophia, and then also Anna von um, Stolberg, Stolberg, I mentioned last week. Uh, but Johann Gerhard, who is also a very well-known theologian, was from Quendlinburg. And uh, Johann Arndt also spent a lot of time in Quendlinburg. So, Quendlinburg is kind of an unusual town. Um, yeah. Where is it? 
Uh, you know, um, it, I, I believe it's part of the uh, br um, Brunswick Wolfenbüttel region. Brandenburg, Wolfenbüttel, Brandenburg. Does anybody want to Google it? Let's just check it out. Oh, it's in Germany. Yes, right. East Germany. We'll have to Google it. You know, I, I, I did that for the last two people, showing you where on the maps. I didn't do it for... Okay. Anywho. The reason why I tell you that, though, is um, because the, the landscape for kind of, you know, Roman Catholic priests and Lutheran pastors were very, like, clearly drawn, and, and you know, the lines were very clear, and they butted up against each other. But... But for any sort of uh, Lutheran kind of nuns or Roman Catholic nuns, there is uh, examples throughout Germany where they would live very peacefully together. And there are sometimes where the the like for instance in Lune, I wrote it up there, L U N E, in 1555 it became a Lutheran convent, but it, and it was instantly changed into an education center. But the women wore the habits all the way up until 1610, 1615, so like almost 100 years uh, after the Reformation. In fact, the first woman who like kind of left the convent to marry was in 1651. So th this is kind of interesting to, to kind of, you know, again, keep this in mind that our perceptions of, of what nuns are are really more influenced by our today than actual history. And one of the interesting things, too, is that when the Reformation began, the, um, and, we, and we got that from last week, uh, the discussion of, like, it would be really nice if we could help the poor and get out of the cloistered walls. That was a very big influence amongst the piety of uh, the women is that they wanted to get out and help, so they had a really great understanding of faith and good works. Um, but in response to that, the Roman Catholics, and then especially solidified in the Council of Trent, which um, it, you know happened later in the 16th century after Luther died, they had really rejuvenated the cloister aspect of of convents. So well, the Lutherans were saying, hey, everyone should help and serve the poor or look outwardly towards helping our neighbor. Um, the, a lot of people who adhere to the Roman Catholic faith saw that as a destruction of the convents. So they revigorated and said, no, we have to cloister the women. Now, um, that was very slow to take because there's a lot of noble families, remember, from last week that put their daughters in the convents, and they wanted these convents still to have the Canis house where they, if they wanted to leave to marry a rich prince, they had that option. So a lot of this, quote-unquote, reformation from the Roman Catholics was very slow to happen. But the, the reason why I bring that up is because of our second uh, reading of... Um, Martha Zitter, who was an Ursuline nun. Ursuline nuns uh, are kind of a, it was, it was a, newer, <laughs> a newer convent back in those days. 
And they actually started out by a woman in Italy who established, it was more like a cannon house, to help feed the poor and educate the orphans. Um, so, and help the homeless. And so this was kind of understood, though, as, hey, are these women kind of like the, those Protestants up in Germany? So, I mean, this basic, the basic mission of this, the Ursulines were to help the poor, feed the hungry, clothe the naked. I mean, good Christian things. But because, <laughs> because they weren't cloistered, a lot of the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church was like, we got to get this under control. So, um, but eventually, though, it, they were kind of brought into the, to the church as an official order and then became cloistered. So just in case you look up Ursuline nuns, Martha Zitter is leaving the cloistered version of Ursuline nuns, not the one that originally was created to help the poor and feed the sick and, you know... Um, it's a nerd tangent, but I think, I think it's important to know. All right, good. All right, so all that was to really demonstrate how, man, the life of uh, women at this time is just as rich as it is today. So, All right, let's get into the documents. Anna Sophia von Quindlenburg. As I already told you, you have a young... Anybody who wants to like do some translation... Would be great translation. The true soul friend, Jesus Christ, with emblems to contemplate. I, I did forget. I should have. I don't know if you guys noticed that in the title. With emblems to contemplate. Who does that remind you of, by the way? Well, it reminds you of Catherine Regina von Greifenberg. I forgot to show you the emblems. I, they're not printed out in this book. But um, between each little, well, not, some are not little, short. Some are not short, some are long. Writings, she'll have an emblem or a picture or a piece of art, symbolic, to um, engage not just your brain and your ears, but also your sight. So, okay, well, anyhow. All right, one of the great things, though, is that um, her, again, she's kind of defending herself by staying inside this, this uh, convent. And she starts out again with this basic premise of men and women being collateral. So she really bases her discussion in creation before sin comes into the world. Now that is, is really important for us because she comes from obviously a monastic or, or kind of tradition. And I, as I said this before, St. Alured of Raveau had this basic premise in spiritual friendship. So as she talks about friendship with Christ, she's clearly influenced by St. Alured of Rivaux and how men and women are collateral. Collateral is a made-up word, remember? It's not collateral, meaning like collateral damage, but collateral, next to each other. Okay? And, and that's important for us because then she dives into five examples of, b- biblical examples of women. Now, of course, what's interesting about her understanding of Scripture? What are the five examples? Eve, Deborah, Hannah, Judith, Judith, 
and Mary. Judas comes back again. I um, I was you know after so we have just one more one more thing to look at, and then we were going to go to the Book of Ruth. But I, I think we might actually look into the Book of Judas just because she's been mentioned so many times, and then we'll go finish the year with on the Book of Ruth. But um, Judas comes in again. I mean, these are remember what Judas did, right? Chop chopped a man's head off. So this is, again, these are very strong images from Holy Scripture, or the Apocrypha, and they cover, they cover a multiple uh, views of, of, of women. So this is really, really great for us to kind of keep in mind. And, um, oh, the one thing, too, was I forgot, you know, she also mentions church tradition and then a specific woman from her time. She's not Lutheran. That's why we never really included her, but... Um, Anna Maria von Schumann, Schumann, yeah. Now again, things the confessional lines are a little bit differently, but she is from, she's Dutch. Uh, but she she was kind of world renowned. Intellectual. It's kind of it's very very unusual, I would say, because she couldn't go to university. <laughs> So you had all those, you know, those those uh, silly prohibitions for women, and um, Anna Sophia of Quindlenburg, her defense for her staying into the convent was actually originally viewed as suspect, and it was really kind of this misogynic look because she was a woman. But of course, it was studied by Lutheran theologians and deemed okay. But so you get that same kind of silliness on Anna Maria von Schumann, but she was so fluent in so many languages and so fluent in all the different subjects that um, you know anybody who tried to question her was kind of just silly. So, anyways, so Anna Sophia brings in kind of this basic doctrine from creation. Man and women are collateral. Male and female are uh, living in relationship next to each other. Then she brings up the biblical examples of Eve, Deborah, Hannah. We'll, we'll put in quotations Judith, and then and then obviously the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, but then also too, then again, common occurrence. What does she say? What does she have that every Christian has? And it's a speaking, something that every Christian has the Holy Spirit. Page 71. Every Christian has the the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, as we already have looked at through the other women, is a speaking spirit. In the Gospel of John, especially, Jesus makes this reference to word and spirit. Now, you have your Bible, Sandy. John chapter 3. I'm just going to show it to you real quick this connection between the Word and the Spirit and how it's grounded in baptism. So again, I think for, I mean, this has been a very common, and maybe I'm kind of just looking for it now, but in all the women we have read, their rich understanding of holy baptism has been, I mean, just really, uh, it's made a huge impact on me. So, it's the story of Nicodemus. Um, 
Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is, this Bible has born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, born again can be also translated as, I, don't, I, I say this many times, so if I've said it, just bear with me. The word born again, the word for born, is a relative verb. So if it's applied to a woman, it's born. If it's applied to a man, it's begot, beget. And the word again can also be translated as above. So I, of course, am the one who actually would translate it. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is begotten from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 3. John chapter 3, verse 3. Sorry, moving quick here. So, um, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Now, of course, Nicodemus thinks Jesus is talking about a human birth out of a woman. But Jesus is actually being understood as being a child of the Heavenly Father. Okay. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is begotten of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is begotten of the spirit is spirit. Again, that's not in your Bible. That's my free translation. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be begotten from above. Now here's the spirit, verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, of course, he's making reference to begotten of the Spirit. Now, the word for spirit and wind are the same. So in verse 8, in this ESV translation, it says, the wind blows. It, it, It can be also translated as the Spirit blows. For Nicodemus, he hears the word wind because he's, he, he just, he's, He's not, he has not been revealed yet. He doesn't have faith yet. Of course, he does come to faith. He's the guy at the end of the Gospel of John who comes and gets Jesus' body. Um, so the Spirit blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. Now, of course, Nicodemus, what is he hearing? What sound is he hearing? It's not the rushing of the wind, but he's hearing Jesus' word out of his mouth. So he's hearing the Spirit because the word is coming out of Jesus' mouth. But you do not know where it comes from. So Nicodemus does not know that Jesus comes from the Father. Or where it goes. He has no idea that Jesus is going to the cross. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So those who are begotten of the Spirit, born of, uh, begotten of the Heavenly Father, know that Jesus' word and the Holy Spirit are one. The Spirit comes in God's word, him being Jesus. Um, well, I mean, we could go further. But anyways, so the whole point, though, is Anna Sophia is saying that, you know, because she has been given this Holy Spirit, this Holy Spirit is a speaking spirit. And for her, she, of course, is going to be speaking. She's going to be sharing God's word. She's going to be um, talking. I mean, it's just kind of a normal thing. That's the image of happening. That's happening. Now, again, though, she places who she's going to be talking with, who she's conversing with, and this is where she has the nuptial image uh, on the bottom of page 71. 
There is a, but she calls it the spiritual friendship. So of course Jesus is going to be talking to her because they're 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 these intimate friends, and she's of course she's not going to just keep that word to herself. She's going to share it. So um, okay, so now what is this? Where does this relationship get played out? That's on the page seventy three in Word and Sacrament. I think it's in the middle. Actually, I should probably look. It's in the middle of the page, I believe. She mentions uh, word and sacrament. Yeah, did I have it? Did I have it circled in yours? Yeah, okay. Um, but what's interesting is so she, so she has a very concrete understanding of her relationship with Christ, that He's speaking to her in in union with her through word and sacrament, and then of course then that creates what she says poetry. So creating music. Sharing God's word is poetry, whether it's literal poetry. We're going to take a look at that next time. I have the handouts over there. Songs and poetry. Or um, it's just this creative word. The word poetry comes from poesis. It's a Greek word, poesis. And poesis means to create. So, um, again, she's very brilliant. She's using this term poetry in a creative way. Not like creative, like artistic way, but like creative and it makes stuff. You know? Um, so, okay. Then, uh, um, yeah, so she makes this argument that she is being, this is the life she has in the convent. I think is is pretty interesting. Now, of course, does this describe only life in the convent? No. Which is so so interesting for us because we have this understanding more like Martha Zitter who says, if you go to the convent, I mean, her picture of the convent is, (laughs) I mean, it's godless, right? Uh, Busy bodies and who knows what's going on in the vestry with the men and the women. Ugh, gross. I mean, who knows? So, but she's saying... She's saying, actually, I, you know, life in the convent for her is this great, God-pleasing and enriching life. But, of course, she's not describing a, a type of uh, life that's exclusive to the convent. But it's common to all Christians. And that is the fun thing for all of us, is that when the Holy Spirit is given to us, we have this calling and this life, then, that we can live in each of our spots that is then creative, life-giving, love, loving. But for her, she argues that can actually happen in this place. And, you know, that's why the, the convent in Quendlinburg stayed open for a long time, because it was a place of gospel. Um, now, she has a very interesting thing at the end. You guys find that I, I found that kind of peculiar, but she mentions the uh, cloister godless maidens of Vesta. So it was kind of like, hey, if these godless people do these things, we Christians should be even better at it, which I think it's kind of fun to read. So there are three things that they do: they watch, they they uh, tend. So the, okay, so the godless. The cloistered godless, godless maidens of Vesta will watch, 
keep watch, keep vigil. And um, in her, they also keep watch, meaning they keep watch for God. The um, uh, Matthew uh, 25 and keeping watch for the bridegroom coming. So she has a, she applies, you know, she Christianizes that aspect. But then also, rather than tending to the, the idol of Vesta, what do, what do they do in their convent? They tend to the word. So what the godless, the closer godless maidens of Vesta try to do, um, while that piety could be understood in a positive way, very faithful, they're faithful to an idol. And what Anna Sophia is saying is that, hey, those actions, those pious actions, actually kind of exemplify for us, but now rather than shooting at the wrong target, we shoot at the right target. We're, we're, you know, we're, we're aimed at God and, and Jesus Christ. And then, of course, then she brings up the notion of sacrifice, but completely Lutheranized. Right. So she understands the role of sacrifice in terms of praise and thanksgiving and then living sacrifice of good works. So she understands herself primarily as, as a priest of the baptized. I mean, this is like, this is uh, Lutheran 101, which I think is just so fun to read because she's a nun. You know, we never could imagine that could happen, but it does. All right, so that is the thinking behind what's happening here in Anna Sophia, is that she starts with creation, the Bible, baptism, and then she pulls in an example from kind of, kind of just culture, which again is very inclu- all-inclusive in our life together. I don't know if you guys ever think about, I mean, I don't think, my, I don't think about my life that structured, but she did. So I think, I think that's a great example for all of us. She, ground, she grinds her ident- or grounds her identity in creation. This is the way God made her. I have examples from the Bible. And when God saved me, he returned me to this relationship that was originally given in uh, creation. It's fascinating. Any questions about Anna Sophia? Yeah, Krista. She had already the Bible who was uh, translated uh, from from Luther, you know, because... That's right, yeah, oh yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, she read in German, yep. uh, Because um, they couldn't read at that time, you know. Um, Well, she probably could because she was a nun. Yeah, I mean, this would be, this is not just a lay woman, um, but that would be applied then to everybody. I mean, of course, though, owning a Bible, of course, was prohibitive. Although at this time, 100 years after the printing press, books were much easier to get a hold of. So, but yeah, I mean, yeah, she knew her Bible. Absolutely. Yeah, oh yeah, right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So that's why, I mean, this is so interesting is that she, she understands herself. I mean, she is very self, she understands herself in, in the Lutheran faith the evangelical faith or whatever she says, which is, again, she's, she's very articulate and very, very, um, uh, I, I would say crafty. She crafts a great argument. All right, well, 
Martha Zitter. We got the opposite now. Now we have life. Woof, man. She leaves the convent. Now she's, she's writing to her mother. Kind of sad, right? But she essentially has five kind of, you know, categories for reason of her leaving. <laughs> and I think it's, it's really the first one that maybe got to her mom. Because why, why, what's her first reason for leaving? She was what? Too young to make a decision in the first place. I was, yeah. I was a little kid. And he had these nuns and this priest guy that, you know, sounded so good and I didn't know any better. And, and then also, too, it was a little bait and switch, right? How, how long, she was supposed to be like Sally Fields and Maria. She was supposed to be, you know, she, three months, right? But it only be like 14 days or something like that. Yeah. So, you know, she was like enraptured by these authority figures, uh, the women and the priests. And, but the thing is, so she, she actually, someone else had a question about this speeding did you notice who, who was also questioning a little bit of this? Was, yeah, the abbess, which I, I thought, I didn't understand that. I thought, well, could she just say, well, this ain't happening? But as you keep reading, though, it kind of makes sense because <laughs> this is the only way I can think of. So later on, you know, all the, the backbiting and all the stuff that she describes later, she actually says, and and this is even applied to the people in authority. So there must have been threats made that rendered the abbess basically powerless. That's, what, that's the only way I can make sense of it, because the abbess seems to be the one who could make the final decision to say, whoa, whoa, we'll wait three months. So if she has any questions about it, in fact, she, um, it seems like she also was going to let her go away but she couldn't do that either. So the only thing I can think of is in her description later on, um, between, uh, this, this would be later, maybe, is it 90? I can't remember what not, page is, 90-something or another. Maybe it's 95. could be 95. could be 97. But the line in deceit and how, <laughs> how basically this community, that once they make something up, And then somebody believes it. It doesn't matter what's true or untrue. It just destroys the community. Yeah, okay. Okay, so the first one was she was too young to make any decisions about this place. She was pressured into going. And because of that, her initial vow should be just rendered pointless. Then next, too, she brings in Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 is what I read in, in uh, chapel. But I'll, I'll read it again. Mark chapter 7, verse 1 through 13, I think it is. Yeah. And she does something very interesting, too. So, 
Now when the Pharisees gathered to Jesus with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless their hand, they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Now, of course, you read this to children, right? What do they think? What's wrong with washing my hands? Are you supposed to wash your hands? Okay, so it's not, it's not a cleaning issue <laughs> necessarily, okay? And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. All right, so Jesus is really getting to a particular point. He's not necessarily just talking in general about having some sort of tradition that is essentially above God's word. But he has a very particular tradition in mind that undermines the fourth commandment. And so that's, that's what we're going to keep reading here. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban or korban that is given to God then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. Okay. And then he goes into what really defiles a person, but we're not going to get into that right now. Um, so the issue for Jesus right now is not so much tradition, but a tradition that actually undermines or replaces God's word. God's word's main point is setting conscience free. Forgiveness of sins, gospel, knowing that God loves you and is, is forgiving your sins. What has happened in Martha Zitter's circumstance and then in the, God, in the Matthew chapter, or Mark chapter 7 situation is that consciences have been bound where there is no word from God. So, people who didn't wash their hands according to the tradition of the elders is viewed as sinners. But of course, God's word does not have that said. So you have a bunch of people who feel they are guilty and on their way to hell because of man's word. So uh, Jesus is actually not against tradition because uh, Anna Sophia is actually the opposite side of things, where there could be a tradition that actually helps and, and is in line with God's word and thus helps with faith. I mean, that's why we're not Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, this is an argument, right? And did you guys have Jehovah's Witnesses in your school and they never participated in... Well, back in those days when you had Christmas things in school, they never participated, right? And I, I, Brad, uh, I always call him Brad Pitt. That's, his name's Brad, Pu Brad Putts. But um, Brad Putts, 
He was the Jehovah's Witness. Hey, man, why? why? You're not going to be part of the part, Christmas party? No, Christmas isn't in the Bible. I was like, man, you believe in the Bible? No, of course, he said yes, but, you know, if you know anything about Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't really have the Bible. But, I'm like, yeah, well, it's not in the Bible, but, come on, it's Christmas. Yeah, celebrate. Jesus born. Jesus is born. I mean, I remember this. Mrs. Koloth, second grade. Mrs. Koloth's class. I'm having that conversation with Brad Putz. Now, is Christmas in the Bible? No. I mean, in the terms of the, the holiday. Of course, Jesus is born in the Bible. Um, but is that a good tradition, to celebrate Christmas at December 25th? Yeah, okay. It absolutely is a good tradition. I mean, it does not get in the way of faith. So, I mean, these are the things where, like, okay, if you're really strict, you would say, well, we don't know when Jesus' birth is, so we could just pick any time of the year. In fact, it's probably in the spring because of the shepherds being to watch it, you know, in, with the sheep at night, and when in the wintertime they wouldn't be out in the cold like that. Okay. Great. Great. I mean, I've, I've heard this from some of my old friends who are like, they get real literal I was like, no, I'm gonna, you know what, I'm going to celebrate Christmas on t- December 25th. You know why? Because it's, it's awesome. Okay? So anyway, so Anna, Anna Sophia is actually, like, she's articulating a life of tradition that's very supportive in her faith, and she has no, no, uh, you know, she does not think for one moment that this is, like, better than anybody else. And, but... Martha Zitter, though, is living in an environment where they are basically creating these things, and if you don't do them, you're sin and you're on your way to hell. So there's all binding consciences. <laughs> a life filled of, of guilt and shame because of these man-made traditions. And in Jesus, in Mark chapter 7, it comes to this point, which we may not quite understand, is that you have a... Uh, in this particular circumstance, a young man who says, oh, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow the tradition of the elders and everything I have is going to go to God. So it means I don't have to take care of my mother and father when they get older, which is a death sentence, basically. So the tradition of men end in death, whether it be literal or metaphorical, death of souls. Um, where the traditions that Jesus adheres to bring life. So, I mean. Anyways, so what Martha Zitter is really getting at is this whole notion that I live in a place that is fulfilling Mark chapter 7. You say that, you know, this is a holy place, but it's filled with arrogance, pride, shame, envy, lying, deceit. Um, So, this is, uh, okay. I mean, I, I'm kind of overwhelmed by a lot of things. So based on Mark chapter 7, then she goes into the vows, the three vows of, um, but, well, before that, though, she says the vows themselves are not biblical, so I shouldn't feel guilty if, if I'm leaving. So they're not biblical, plus you can't really keep them. Um, some don't even want to keep them. And, and they're not freely chosen. So, you know, she's make, making all these points. But even the, the, the 
so then she goes and follows the same sort of line of, uh, from last week. The true vow of poverty is not in the man-made tradition, but where is the true vow of poverty? She brings it up again. Holy baptism. We've already made a vow of poverty where God is going to be number one in our life and not riches and materialism. And that's a real vow. So she places this, you know, this is the understanding of baptism. Super great. Now, of course, she can't talk about chastity. I thought that was kind of interesting. I mean, because she's talking to her mom, unless she knew it was going to be public, so maybe that's probably in the back of her mind. Maidens don't talk about that. Okay. I like the way she says that on page 99. Yeah, right in the middle. Well, go ahead and read it, Donna. Oh, but this has already been agreed to, for all Christians are responsible to observe such a vow because of their baptismal and Christian duties to hang their hearts on God and not on worldly goods. And, you know, she goes into so much detail because she wants to tell her mother. She said her mother doesn't know all these tricks. Right. Yeah, isn't that great? Yeah, so, you know, these are, these are uh, calculated decisions by the people in her convent to put on a mask, a fake mask of piety. Yeah, all right, great. So then obedience, of course, then, you know, the vow of obedience. She already makes a vow of obedience to God alone in holy baptism. And then she brings up all these examples. What do I do when I say I'm going to obey someone who's a sinner? who's asking me to sin. And then she gives all these examples. Right? One was the busybody. Hey, if you hear Jan talking about something that she shouldn't be talking about, come and tell me. <laughs> I'm like, I mean, isn't that, that's, that's, that's the first example. So you have all these, I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's, I feel like, you know, in the back of my mind, because I've talked to the Russians so many times, it's way too much like communism. Turn it, turn them in, turn them in. So that's not historically true, but anyways, uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, this is really an interesting thing for her is that she, so she says, I'm going to obey God. And just so that you know, the people that I said I was going to obey are just awful. I mean, she talks about the four superiors, the four elderly women who never talk to each other. Sometimes publicly they will, but they hate each other. And it just causes all this terrible things in the... And then uh, shameful envy, the amount of envy involved in the place. And she says the place is cultivating this. It's not like it's just, you know, these random people, but it's, it's this culture inside. And it's from the top to the bottom. So she... Uh, She's, I mean, she's created an idol. Remember, idols bind consciences. Idols don't allow questions. And so they're not freeing. And of course, the only response of an idol, the proper response to an idol is to smash it. There's no, like, reforming idols. It's just smashing it. And for Martha, in her experience, the convents, this convent in particular, in, um, uh, where, where was this convent? Erford? Erford? Yeah? Okay. Um, Erford. Erford. E-R-F-U-R-T. 
right? Yeah. It's kind of a hard word for me to say. Uh, so she's like, you know, I got to get out of here. You know, it's, it's monumental. It has to be cleaned out, cleaned house. So the whole thing, though, is that um, in her description, uh, right after the vows of the life of community, is based on this fundamental false notion that if you are a nun, you're by nature holier than others. And so, like, these people kind of believe their own hype, in a sense, which removes them from just kind of the normal life of, of confession and repentance and depending upon Christ. They're, they're just depending upon themselves too much. Which then goes into the final thing that she says. She gives three theological reasons why she's left faith and good works, the saints, the intercession of the saints, and then purgatory in indulgences. Which I think is, uh, that's, that's really great. So Martha is not only deconstructing the life in her convent, but she's also, she's got some fundamental issues with Roman Catholic theology. Now the thing about Martha, though, and this is, she entered into, so she lived in a time where Lutheranism was well-established. So it wasn't like um, last week's discussion or Catherine von Bora, who didn't have, you know, Lutheranism around when they entered into the convent. So she, she has got a unique story because Protestantism or Lutheranism was well-established. And it wasn't until her experience in the convent that caused her to rethink things. And what was, the, what was one of the ways that God used to get her to rethink things? She was hearing something. She heard hymns from the Lutheran church, which is essentially next door. I don't know if that said that in the footnotes. I think it might have did. Isn't that crazy? That is so fun. So, yeah, Krista. The person there, they were so isolated. You know, the nuts and yeah. the cloister. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, um, so that, that's quite, uh, quite different what we are thinking of today. Right. You know? And uh, there must be an obedience. Otherwise, you can't have a cloister where, where so many women are... Um, working together how they have to work together. Yeah, right, sure. And, uh, um, and I think uh, when, when um, Katharina von Bora um, was uh, leaving the cloister, there were, there were um, five or six other nuns. Right. And uh, um, they were well-educated. Yep. You know, because when, um, when he brought the nuns, what, what should we do with them? What should we do with them? Right. You know, because everything was so strange. Yeah, right. And uh, completely different. So many were uh, teachers, and um, right. Or they try to uh, get somebody who get married. Them. Right. Is it teachers, nurse, yeah. like hospitals, or yeah. being but a wife? Was their education at the cloister? Yeah. Well, that's why Martha Zitter actually entered it, right? I don't know. If, so I don't know if you got that in the beginning. She originally was going... So this is something about the Ursuline uh, order, was that even though they were cloistered, they would bring in girls for, like, school. 
So she came in as a girl to receive education, but then while she was there, they said, hey, you should stay and stay inside. So the earth signs were a little different, but the same aspect as Krista was saying is that these women were um, trained to be teachers of like schools, but also of piety, you know, spiritual disciplines, practices. And so, um, uh, obviously that wasn't happening. But because they were cloistered, and, you know, you hear this strange music coming over the wall, and you have nothing else going on in your life except for all this terrible stuff happening, I could imagine her just sitting in the garden listening. That makes sense. Um, yeah, it's at, I think it's towards the end. One zero one at the bottom here. Oh, yeah, very bottom. Yeah, this is also the section where I, it was a little confusing, but I think it got cleared up in the footnotes. Where, um, yeah, where her own pastor's words was used against him. Pastor Marcus uh, Schunemann. First, because uh, I was reading him, I was like, wait a second, I thought, I thought he was Roman Catholic, but it seems like he's helping things. And then in the footnote, it says he was used against him. But anyways, that's just before that part. Okay. The devil's spirits were displeased with me because I often listened to Lutheran hymns from the church when I was in the convent garden. So she's basically saying that the devil was using her convent to try to dissuade her from leaving the convent. Like, yeah. I mean, I, it, it, okay, I'm not going to get on a tangent here, but this is one of the fun things about being Lutheran, is that, you know, Lutheran hymns are pretty cool. When it comes to hymns, I know that sounds a little funny, right? That's like, you know, being an accountant is cool. Um, Lutheran hymns are cool, and it's, it's for this very reason, that if you do spend time with them, you will, I mean, you will be changed. I mean, it's, it's really great. Um, all right, any last comments about Martha Zitter? Holly. I just could not believe in reading that the um, priests were so wrapped up in talking about what are they were during the service that they forgot to consecrate their own. Isn't it, it's just strange, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you know, again, this is so interesting for us because you, you're like, what in the world is going on? I know, but see, this is hard for us to fathom. This is why we always have to be careful about projecting our own times on the past, for better or for worse. And this is also, too, like as you read Holy Scripture, like when, uh, you know, following Solomon and all the kings, like we don't quite understand how terrible worship life was in the Old Testament. I mean, temple prostitution was a thing in Israel, which is, I mean, hard for us to fathom, right? So to think that the, the priests are going on talking during church with themselves and with nuns, Seems unfathomable. However, if worship life is mainly a spectator thing 
and you're only looking for the particular points that you really need to, then as long as one guy's mumbling something and the other priests, they can be chit-chatting, talking, doesn't matter. Oh, I do all the time. Exactly. No, I mean, it, it, it's, it's kind of strange, but yeah, like, it just goes to show you that things can be pretty screwed up. And just goes to show that, hey, things aren't so bad right now, and we should be happy. Be joyful. <laughs> yeah, Kathy. Um, well, it's not. <coughs> this, this happens in Lutheran churches, too. Yeah. Uh, at a service once where the pastor was in the middle of the institution, and all of a sudden he walked out. <laughs> and everybody's like, what's going yeah, right. And they came back out, and he admitted he'd been eating a Snickers. And he got a peanut stuck in his throat. <laughs> and he couldn't finish it, so he walked out and yeah. cleared his throat. And it was like my hair just stood up. And, uh, well, did, we, did you guys all forgive him? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, listen here, I don't, maybe, you know, what is it, uh, if you, you have diabetes, right? Maybe he had diabetes. I, I, I put that. I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm trying to do the best, your best construction, yeah. Make a good construct out of it. But can you really not wait till afterwards to eat a Snickers bar? That would be my, that would be my basic present. There must have been an emergency. Because no normal person would be eating during church. Use a Milky Way so it doesn't have peanuts. That's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, at least yeah, at least he got it out of his throat. I mean, you know, I've always wondered this. By the way, this is something. This is a little thing for me. I've never asked Pastor Bruzek about this. I don't know what made me think of it just a week or two ago. What if, because I'm, I'm celebrating, and I thought to myself, this is full disclosure about what goes in the brain sometimes of Pastor Nelson. I thought to myself, what if someone, like, has a heart attack right now? Like, do I stop the service, call the ambulance, and then once that happens, then we start where we left off? Something I think about, you guys. Yeah, but yeah, now I'm saying literally during the words of institution. That's that's what I'm saying. Yeah, because if it happens during the sermon or the prayers, yeah, that's you just take a break. And I mean, the whole question too, though, is if the person's alive or is the person dead. And that I'm thinking, if someone dies, what do you do? Yeah, no, no, yeah, that's uh, very. This is a very particular thought. Not a, uh, like, oh, what happens if someone gets sick or something like that? You have to call out ambulance. That's happened. Yeah, that's happened before when we were here. In fact, even in this building it happened. Uh, yeah. But they, uh, we, got the, we got the ambulance come, but they were, they fainted. We weren't really sure what was going on, yeah. They needed a Snickers bar. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, all right, great. So, okay, so the whole point of today, again, it follows along this, this line of how um, women's life at this time is still enriched by God's word. Women have a place of, of really sharing and communicating God's word. And 
again, this is mainly in letters here. These are all letters. Oh, well, except for Anna Sophia, that was actually a, a book of meditations. Next week, or next time we meet. Now, next week we're not meeting because I'll be up in Wisconsin. Uh, next time we meet, it, and this will be our last thing on the Lutheran Reformation, is uh, I have a handout back over there, and it is uh, uh, women's religious songs, I think it says in there. But it's, uh, it's basically hymns or songs. I mean, some are hymns, some are not. Written by women. And uh, as you read them, remember, this is, so it's a little peculiar because, A, they're originally written in German, so they rhyme, but when they're translated in English, they don't. And uh, the translator, again, wasn't trying to write a hymn to sing, but was translating in a more literal sense. And I, that, that's why we're actually doing this, because there are hymns written by women that are in, like, for instance, the, the, the one we sing in chapel, but in older hymns but they've been translated to rhyme, and they don't always hold kind of a literal translation. So I thought it was a little more fun to read the literal translation. Now, again, too, we have to think about when we read hymns, you know, they're meant to be sung, so it's a little different. But also, too, this is a form of piety. So these are mainly for, they're not only just teaching, but also for prayer life. And so that's something that as you kind of, Explore these. Take your time with them. Don't rush through it. Again, they're not trying to write a treatise with a point and argument. They're really just praising God. And so that, that's something to kind of keep in the back of your mind. Um, they each have a kind of little historical introductions, which is kind of fun to read. But we're going to be spending time with the actual songs themselves and how they utilize God's word. That's going to be the fun thing, so how they use God's word. So baptism probably won't play too much of a role as it has been playing since uh, Argula von Grimbach, but um, uh, obviously God's word will too. Yeah. All right, great. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.